hello to everyone who is here with me tonight, and hello to everyone who will listen to this as a speaker tape in the future. My name is Andrew, and I live in New Hampshire. I am a grateful recovering addict. I am powerless over marijuana. I am here tonight to share my experience, strength, and hope with you. I am here to express my gratitude to you for walking the road of recovery with me. But first, I need to explain how I got here. Some parts of my story may resonate with you, and others may not. Some of my experiences may remind you of experiences that you had in your life. Others may not. Isn't that natural? We are all unique examples of how this program works, each of us with our distinct gifts to share. So tonight, allow me to share my distinct gifts with you, my unique story about what my life was like before addiction, what my life was like during the worst of my addiction, and what my life is like now that I am recovering. The early years of my life were not traumatic. They were characterized by an overprotection from the reality of life. My parents loved me dearly, but did not allow me to experience the full range of life's offerings. I was sheltered from anything that was perceived as risky. So I developed my personality as a nerd, an avid reader, curious about the world around me, craving the approval of my teachers, my parents, and everyone else around me. I proudly labeled myself as a perfectionist, as if that made me superior to those around me who were content with average grades and mediocre outcomes. And for the most part, I handled the perfectionist label well. I got straight A's, and I was involved in 20 extracurricular activities by the time I was a senior in high school. I felt that there was no ceiling above me. I felt that anything was possible. I knew that I would write my name into the history books alongside Galileo, Newton, Einstein, all of these people who had advanced our entire species. I was accepted into an Ivy League college and I was excited to attend, ready to blossom into the person I was meant to be. But after high school graduation, a funny thing happened. I started socializing with some of my high school classmates that summer. After my senior prom, neither my date nor, nor I consumed a drop of alcohol, nor did we exchange any kisses. Those same classmates I just referenced were drinking beer and making out with their dates. Some of them went even further. I had always been a nerd, but I had also been gregarious, outgoing, and social. I was quite well known at my high school. I ran for student council president, and at 275 pounds, I was a very visible presence in the hallways. That summer, with a ticket to Harvard in my back pocket, I hung out with those friends every night. At first, we drank vodka and chased it with Coca-Cola. I found it to be quite disgusting. I never liked alcohol. Lucky me. But when one of my friends brought out his bag of weed and we smoked it from a dented aluminum can with holes poked in the side, I started to feel something. And at some point that summer, I realized that I was getting high just about every night. I loved it. It made me feel cool. It made me feel accepted. It made all of my anxiety melt away. When I got to college and found myself craving drugs, skipping classes, neglecting my readings and my papers, my brain worked overtime to justify my actions. I felt like I was Aldous Huxley exploring the doors of perception. I felt like I was Timothy Leary testing the limits of what it means to be human. When I ate psilocybin mushrooms for the first time, I felt my sense of autopilot disengage, and I felt like I was experiencing life as it truly was. But it wasn't always easy to score weed on my own. 
When I couldn't get it, I started buying eight ounce bottles of cough syrup and I became addicted to dextromethorphan, its active ingredient. And I eventually realized I didn't even have to pay for it. I could just slip a bottle of it into my pocket and leave the store. It was not my drug of choice, but it was the drug that was most most readily available to me. I was certainly not in control of my life anymore. I lasted three semesters in college before I flunked out because I spent my nights smoking, drinking cough syrup, and watching South Park on my laptop. I lost all delusions that I was on this planet to do something historically special. But around that same time in my life, I began to believe in the concept of fate or destiny. Not necessarily that some deity was writing my story for me and that I had no free will to exercise, but instead that there was a reason for everything that was happening. That seed was planted in my head in high school when I read a book called A Prayer for Owen Meany, where the protagonist of the book repeatedly practices a trick basketball shot early in his life. Later in his life, he uses that exact skill to save a group of children from a grenade. He died in the process. That was his fate. It was his purpose. It was what he was on earth to do. The seed that fate was real was further watered in my mind when I watched The Matrix Reloaded and heard Morpheus utter a phrase I've been thinking about ever since I heard it. What happened happened and couldn't have happened any other way. How do you know? We are still alive. The events of my own life seem too interconnected to be mere coincidences. There had to be more to the story. I am here with you tonight because of every decision I've ever made and every decision everyone else has ever made. My father immigrated from another continent, and he just so happened to find my mother. She successfully carried me to term. I was her second child. She could have stopped after her first. She was in a car accident while she was pregnant with me, but I was not injured. Why else am I here tonight? Because of the people in my past who rejected me and because of the people who accepted me. You are here listening to me now because of the sum total of all the decisions everyone who has ever existed has ever made, from the founders of Marijuana Anonymous to the people who decided to build boats and cross oceans to the people who figured out how to invent the telephone. Imagine living in that historical world where knowledge was undoubtedly more limited. Can you imagine being the first woman on earth to become pregnant? How terrifying it must have been to feel a developing child moving inside of you. How much more incredibly terrifying still to give birth to that child. But without our common ancestors, we wouldn't be here tonight. I was raised Catholic, but my most important philosophical ideas have come from Taoism and Buddhism. In my belief system, all sentient beings are different expressions of a common life force. Our souls are all made up of the same material. When we die, our souls return to the source only to, be, only to be reanimated in another form. In my view, if I do good to someone else, good has been done to someone else in the world. If I do someone harm, someone else has been harmed. Whenever something bad happens to someone else, it may as well have happened to me. Our attachment to our own physical forms, to our concept of I and me, is the separation that ultimately causes our suffering. Fate is my higher power in this program. Fate can be a troubling higher power because it means that all of our suffering has been part of a larger interconnected plan. Why should some people have to endure incredible pain and trauma while others seem to live such blessed lives? 
I cannot answer that question. I am not entitled to such knowledge. I am here for a reason fully beyond my comprehension. I know that I have been inches away from death. I have been seconds away from death. I have been milligrams away from death. But I'm still here, so whatever I'm here for, I have not yet accomplished. There are so many people on this earth, nearly 8 billion people, doing nearly 8 billion different things. I promise you that in your wildest dreams, using your fullest imagination, you cannot fathom the breadth of human activity occurring at this very moment. The full spectrum of human experience is occurring around the world right now. Birth, death, marriage, divorce, a first kiss, a last breath. Today, many people had the best day of their life, and today, many people were brutally murdered. Why does it have to be this way? I don't know. I can't possibly know. So what do I know? A concept I've believed in for quite some time is what I call the sparkle, although I've only recently given it that name. You know when you meet someone with the sparkle. You see yourself in them. You see the eternal reflected in them. You see the ultimate source of goodness in them. I know that I have it. I have long felt that I am a special person here on earth to do at least one special thing before I die, something that nobody else could have done. After all, it is death that makes life so special. We have such limited time to experience the world around us, and yet the world does not stop when any one of us perishes. We are all so lucky whether we feel that way or not. There has never been a better time to be alive. The sum total of human knowledge is greater than it has ever been in the past. The people who came before us have left us with innumerable gifts. What gifts will we leave to those who come after us? We cannot imagine what the world will be like in a hundred years, a thousand years, a million years. We know that the earth is headed into the sun and the human race will die out if we do not find a way to work together to find a new homeland. Yet we continue to hate each other over petty differences. We continue to kill each other. We continue to attempt to assert our dominance over our enemies and subjugate them to our will. What a silly, short-sighted way to live. I fell in love with drugs to ease the pain of rejection in my life. Time after time in my life, romantic feelings were not reciprocated. Outcomes that I desired were not achieved. But when I smoked marijuana with my friends that summer after high school graduation, I began to care less and less about that. Marijuana felt like a friend for some time, but of course it began to turn on me. I was arrested twice for marijuana possession. My white male privilege resulted in only minor penalties, relatively small fines, probation fees, court costs. My cases were continued without a finding and then dismissed. As fate would have it, I was arrested two years in a row on the very same day. Yet still, even with the sudden legal consequences that came with smoking weed, the idea of a life without marijuana was unimaginable. Nearly every single person I called a friend was someone who I smoked marijuana with. Very few of my friends were abstinent from pot. It was not always easy to obtain marijuana. I remember the times in my life when I would deposit a check for $100 written to myself into the ATM, and it would let me withdraw $100 cash. I'd end up with a balance of negative $135 after the overdraft fee, but at least I had $100 to go score some pot. 
running dry was the worst possible outcome in life. I would have to smoke resin balls that I scraped from my pipes with a paper clip. Sometimes I even smoked stems. I was desperate to feel different. My father had some Vicodin that he kept in a box under his bed. I started stealing those from him one at a time. When he eventually found out that I had taken the entire bottle, he confronted me, half angry, half crying that I was capable of treating him like that. He needed those pills to manage his physical pain. I was using them to manage my emotional pain. But in reality, I was failing to cope with my emotions, even with the drug use. I associated with some very unsavory, dangerous people at various points in my life to serve my drug addictions. I remember going to Montreal to visit a friend, and he actually accompanied me as I trawled around metro stations for someone to sell me a dime bag. I was completely pathetic. I started using other drugs. When my friends were home from college, we would snort cocaine. I loved the feeling, but when they left, I had no one to buy it from. So I found someone who would sell me Adderall. I would buy their entire 30-pill prescription for $300. I was 275 pounds when I left high school. I was about 250 pounds during my freshman year of college. In the depths of my addiction to Adderall, I reached a low weight of 153 pounds. People who had known me for my whole life thought I had a wasting disease and were genuinely concerned for my health. Meanwhile, I thought I looked great. I thought the obstacle to being liked by girls, my weight, had finally been overcome. And yet, there was still nobody who wanted to be my romantic partner. What a conundrum. I even experimented with snorting heroin. The fact that I never injected it into my body made me feel like I wasn't a junkie. But, my God, I certainly was. Then I hit the depths of my despair. To boil down a very complex situation into a single sentence, the girl I thought I loved did not love me back. One brisk February evening, I told her that if she wasn't willing to be with me, I had nothing to live for. She took me at my word and left the room to call 911 while her two roommates kept me out of the kitchen where the knives were. A few minutes later, two police officers were escorting me into the back of an ambulance where they took me to the psychiatric emergency room of the local hospital. When they told me that they had to hold me for 72 hours of observation and that I had no say in the matter, I did not react well. On the fourth day, they felt that I was not a threat to myself or to others and told me I would be able to leave the next day. But as fate would have it, someone, I never found out who, forwarded some of my suicidal journal entries to the dean of my college who forwarded them to the hospital. They kept me there for 23 days. I felt they were treating me like a science experiment. They prescribed drugs I did not feel I should be taking. They fed me Risperdal, an antipsychotic medication used to treat schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, neither of which I had ever been diagnosed with. They fed me Remeron, an atypical antidepressant that had been in use for only about 10 years when it was first prescribed to me. Why? I don't know. Then they assigned me to a therapist. I went for weekly visits for a couple of months, but I had no respect for that process. I did not feel that it was appropriate for me to have to work through my feelings with this man who I did not know and who certainly did not know me. I stopped going to my appointments. I stopped taking the prescription pills. I started smoking marijuana again. My trusty friend, the only thing that made me feel like everything was going to be okay, 
because it was numbing me to all of my feelings. I couldn't feel any emotions, no happiness, no sadness, just emptiness. I tried crawling out of the funk, but I still felt like absolute garbage. I was living with my parents who were continually disappointed and upset with me for using marijuana in their house. They asked me to stop, but I could not. I would open my bedroom window and blow the smoke out the window like that was doing something. They used to pound on my locked bedroom door and demand that I stop. When they, when they found that ineffective, they would come to my door and angrily stuff towels underneath the crack of the door. I knew that I was letting them down, but I could not stop. I did not want to stop. I couldn't even think of stopping. I just allowed my relationship with them to deteriorate. My relationship with marijuana was far more important. This was my rock bottom. Many people find their way to MA at their rock bottom moment, but not me. I would continue to use for a long, long time. About a year later, I entered into an emotionally abusive relationship, which was completely centered around marijuana. Of course, it didn't start out as an abusive relationship, but we were both marijuana addicts and we were codependent. That relationship lasted for several years and left me with many emotional wounds, some of which have scarred over and some of which are still healing to this day. After far too long, I exited that relationship and about a year later entered into a healthier relationship, but that new relationship was still centered around weed. I continued to plan my life around marijuana. I did not want to go anywhere where I could not smoke. I did not want to be away from home for any extended period of time. The advent of the marijuana vape pen eased that struggle a bit for me, but I never got the same feeling from the vape pen that I got from smoking flour. My life was trending upward, but still was always centered around marijuana. I got married on April 20th, of course, and made it a destination wedding in a state where recreational marijuana was legal. Yet I still denied that marijuana was an important part of my identity. I thought that life could only get better from here. Marijuana had been legalized in every state that borders my own. It would be just a matter of time before it's legalized here too and everywhere else. That was an outcome I never expected to see in my own life. I would be able to come out as a weed smoker the same way that my friends are allowed to publicly love craft beers and to pretend to know things about wine and to drink that disgusting gasoline-smelling whiskey and those other garbage liquors without feeling like they have to hide what they're doing. People at work would joke about wishing it was 5 o'clock so they could get home and drink. I could never feel comfortable embracing my identity as a pothead while it was still illegal and taboo. I have absolutely no doubt about it. I planned my entire life around my marijuana use. I used to have to go into an office every day And even though the ride home was short, I would drive to an adjacent parking lot and smoke weed before hitting the road. I just could not be apart from marijuana any longer than I had to be. I eventually stopped going into the office, but I had made myself so indispensable that I was allowed to work from home. I thought it was such a sweet deal, but in reality, I was just digging the hole deeper and deeper. Now I had time to smoke weed from the moment I woke up until the moment I fell asleep. I got high alone quite regularly. I certainly could not imagine a life without marijuana. I could not do anything without smoking first. I did not want to spend time with my wife's friends. They were drinkers, not smokers. What use did I have for them? I set up a life where I did not have to worry about my stash running dry. 
I would buy two ounces at a time. And when I was down to one ounce, I would buy two more. I started keeping records in 2013. I spent $110,000 on weed over the last nine years. And who knows how much more spent in the 10 years prior. It's the reason I don't own a home while so many of my peers do. Marijuana let me live in a privately defined world. That's a concept I had not been able to put words to before I found MA. I was selfish. I did not really care about improving the lives of the people around me. I only wanted to navigate the world in a way that allowed me to maintain my addiction. And that was mostly by declining social invitations and complaining whenever I had to leave the comfort of my own couch. I hated running into neighbors on my way to the mailbox or the dumpster. I did not want to talk to anybody. But then, last year, life changed in a flash. One of my wife's closest friends died in a motorcycle crash. That fucked with my emotions in a way that I hadn't felt in so long. Why did that have to happen? I don't know. The world is less bright without her in it. She radiated kindness. She was so generous and selfless, at least from my vantage point. She had the sparkle, and now she's gone. Over the preceding years, my wife had seriously contemplated divorcing me because of my inconsiderate, selfish, addict-type behaviors. She had implored me to seek professional help. I never did. But as the tears flowed for our dead friend, I knew it was time to talk to someone about how I was feeling. I entered therapy in August 2021. During my first meeting with my therapist, she told me that based on what I had told her, the only thing she could diagnose me with was substance abuse disorder. I acted confused and indignant and begged her not to stigmatize me in that way. When she challenged me to go a week without weed to establish a baseline for what my personality is like when my blood is not full of THC, I realized I could not go for more than an hour without it. That was the moment I realized that smoking marijuana had stopped being fun. I realized that I was living in the prison of addiction. I thought I was smoking compulsively because it was such an ingrained habit triggered by so many commonplace occurrences. Empty inbox, time to smoke. Dog needs to be walked, time to smoke. Feeling hungry, can't eat without smoking first. Want to watch some TV? Pull out the pipe. Time for bed? How can I possibly tuck myself in without smoking first? I often smoked in bed. I never woke up in the middle of the night to smoke. I guess that's a feather in my cap. But I wasn't smoking out of habit, as I had always tried to convince myself. I was smoking because I wanted to feel different. I didn't feel normal until I had weed smoke in my lungs. And it caused problems with my health. Coughing up black tar balls is not a healthy way to live. When I hit my first 25-day sober streak, I started reading through my online journal that I used to keep from 2001 to 2014. I realized I had completely forgotten about that period of my life where I was suicidal. I had been taking such reckless actions with such hard and heavy drugs, hoping to die. As I emerged from that pe period of my life, I continued to use marijuana on a daily basis. And for sure, it was to cope with my feelings. I felt rejected. I felt alone. I felt misunderstood. I did not feel special anymore. I dialed into my first MA meeting on Tuesday, April 12th of this year, and I've attended many meetings since then. I've even hosted 23 meetings. 
I'm so blessed and grateful to have found this wonderful organization. I can't imagine what my life would be like if I was simply content to live out the rest of my days smoking weed from the morning till the nighttime 20 times a day. But why did I ultimately have to stop smoking? Today, my wife is eight months pregnant. Our baby is the reason I needed to stop smoking. I do not want to be the dad who shows up to parent-teacher conferences smelling like weed with glossy bloodshot eyes. I don't want my son to ever see me high. I am looking forward to the day when my son has to make his own choices about whether to try alcohol and drugs. I'll have a chance to be as brutally honest with him as I have been with all of you here tonight. And if he wants to try those intoxicants for himself after he carefully considers my own advice, that will be his choice. But I'll be there for him if and when things start to go off the rails in a way that nobody was there for me when my own life fell off the track and over a cliff. My son is a miracle. My wife was shot three months ago. While our neighbors were setting off fireworks in the parking lot across the street, one of them fired his handgun from his porch, just one shot. It found its way through trees, branches, leaves, vinyl siding, drywall, and it entered my wife's abdomen. We were both terrified by the loud bang and the puff of drywall smoke in the air, but we thought a firework had come through the wall. When I looked at my wife and saw blood on her hands coming from her stomach, that is a moment of terror I cannot put into words, a moment that I will live with for the rest of my life. I was afraid we had lost our child. I was afraid I would lose my wife. But the bullet missed the baby. It missed my wife's organs, her major arteries, her major veins. She has made a full recovery aside from a nasty scar on her belly that will forever remind us of the thinness of the line between life and death. How fragile is the flame that burns within us all to light each passing day? It can be blown out at any moment, so we can't take tomorrow for granted. It was a masterclass teaching me the lesson that I am not in control of many aspects of my own life. The serenity prayer is more than a set of words to memorize and recite at the beginning and end of each meeting. It is true wisdom imploring us to understand that there are things in life over which we can exercise our willpower and a much larger set of things in this world over which we have no control whatsoever. Even now on Recovery Road, I have had moments of survivor's guilt. I've walked by the apartment of our dead friend with tears in my eyes and I've said out loud that it should have been me that died, not her. I don't understand why the world allowed me to survive the depths of my despair but the world saw fit to snuff out her brightly sparkling soul. But everything happens for a reason. I can only hope that by the end of my life, I will have gained knowledge of God's will for me and will have carried it out. I have no doubt that I am on that path. The 12 steps of Marijuana Anonymous do not allow for any other outcome as long as I keep coming back, and I will. In the fellowship of MA, I have found my home. I have found my people. I have found my fellow grateful recovering addicts. I am empowered to be of service to others. I can feel connected to the people around me instead of feeling the need to hide from them. For the last 19 years, I have fearfully hidden my light under a bushel basket, afraid to be found out as a pothead. The fellowship of MA has allowed me to remove the basket that was covering my light. 
I am just beginning to walk alongside my fellows on Recovery Road, but there is no doubt about it, my light is shining now. I refuse to live in regret. I would not be the person I am today if I made different decisions in the past, and I am incredibly happy and satisfied with the person I am today. But I cannot say that I would feel that way if I had ignored the call to therapy, the call to sobriety, the call to recovery. And I am glad that each of you listening to me today, whether you're on day one or day 10,000, also decided to answer the call to recovery. We are helping ourselves, but more importantly, we are helping others. The world is full of suffering addicts, and some of them will eventually make it here to MA. And when they pick up the phone for the very first time, I want to be there on the other end to share my experience, strength, and hope the same way that so many others were there waiting for me when I nervously dialed in to my first meeting. Today, I only have 20 days of continuous sobriety due to some arrogant relapses, but I have no doubt that I will continue to walk this road with you, and I am looking forward so much to achieving sobriety milestones that will allow me to take service positions in this organization to continue to help spread our message and improve the lives of our fellow addicts. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to share my story with you this evening. I feel truly blessed to be here with all of you tonight, and I hope that some part of my story has made you feel happy that you decided to join this amazing fellowship. 